Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Room for Disrupt TV. We've got some amazing guests, and uh, we're going to kick off with some short introductions by asking everybody where they're from and, of course, what they'll be talking about today, and then we'll kick into our show. So, Bill, where are you coming in from today? Westchester County, New York, due north of the Big Apple. I'm co-author with Michael McLaughlin here of Battlefield Cyber, how China and Russia are undermining our democracy and national security. It's a long title, but it's, it's a scary book. <laughs> I know. I couldn't drop it when I, I couldn't. Yeah, we we're looking at it for quite some time. Michael, where are you coming in from? What are we talking about? Hey, Ray, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm coming out of D.C. right now, um, staring at the president's motorcade, actually drive by my building. Uh, and I'm along with Bill. I'm co-author of Battlefield Cyber, how Russia and China are undermining our democracy and national security. No, we can't wait to get to the book. Thomas, welcome. What are you coming in from today? What are we talking about? I'm coming in from Silicon Valley and talking about AI and cloud. All right. We can't beat that. All right. Well, hey, we'll turn it back to our producer, Elle. We'll kick off and uh, let's go. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter X at Disrupt TV Show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray's a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Afro, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of this new book, Boundless, which he wrote with Henry King. And it's really a new mindset for unlimited business success. And it's available now on Amazon. But more importantly, executives around the world are paying attention to every one of his insightful tweets, his insightful keynotes. And of course, when he's not speaking at events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and, of course, writing insightful analyses of things like this show on ZDNet. But as we often say, it's not about our show. It's not about us. It's about our amazing guests that come on. So who do we have to kick it off today, Bala? Ray, we have the best and brightest CEOs that come on our show, and there's no exception today. It's an honor for us to have Thomas Curry and CEO of Google Cloud. Thomas joined Google in 2018 as the CEO of Google Cloud. Google Cloud enables businesses to build what's next with better software and faster by using Google's core infrastructure, data analytics, and machine learning. 
You can protect your data and apps with the same security technology that Google uses. Amazing. Some stats I wanted to share. It's, it's kind of amazing. 900 plus partners in software integrations in Google Cloud's data and AI ecosystem. 135 language translations and just click of a button. Over 70% of generative AI unicorns are Google Cloud customers. In fact, over 50% of all AI startups that have ever been funded run on Google Cloud. More than 110 plus terabytes of data per second analyzed by BigQuery customers. This is just an amazing company. Over 100 products under Google Cloud brand for compute, storage, database, networking, cloud for AI, management tools, identity security, on and on. Truly, the autonomous enterprise is going to be powered by Google Cloud. Now, prior to Google, Thomas spent 22 years at Oracle, where most recently he was president of product development. So with over 30 years of experience, it has given him deep knowledge of engineering, enterprise relationship, leaderships with large organizations. Thomas serves as a member of the Stanford Graduate School of Business Advisory Council, and he also serves as Princeton University School of Engineering Advisory Council. You can follow Thomas on Twitter at ThomasORTK. Welcome, Thomas, to Disrupt TV. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. We're, we're so excited to have you. And we're geeking out on stats like we normally do. But Thomas, <laughs> you speak normally with CEOs, business leaders around the world every day. And as you think about their needs and their ultimate impact AI can have on them, what gets you most excited? You know, we when we, we started a long time ago looking at AI at Google, and our vision was about building the a, a capability with AI models to have all the skills that humans have. And you know, as the boundaries of this advancement has occurred, we're seeing companies now and CEOs thinking about using this to reimagine every part of their business. Uh, we have insurance companies that are changing the way they do you know, claims management and leasing rather than having people go out and have to do it. A model, you upload a picture, a model does it and can automate the whole process of doing claims. We've got hospitals saying, can I use multimodality where I have a system where I can search an image of an X-ray and an EHR report about a patient and correlate that information instantly. And you can do that now. Uh, people are looking at creating movies, uh, advertising, changing the way that they can use image creation and chaining them together into new forms of entertainment. So in virtually every field, we're seeing people take the persona that they had and then creating a digital version of that persona using AI. And this is happening incredibly quickly. We have thousands and thousands of customers using our platform in travel, building digital travel agent, building a hotel concierge who's digital, customer service desk, and even within internally within the company, procurement specialist, a digital procurement specialist, what's happening in supply chain, helping people with a supply chain expert who can tell you which contracts are the best one and where to buy new products from. I mean, there's so it's across the board, but the common theme is taking the skills of the model that represents what human beings can do, but now creating a digital persona and assisting a function with it. That's awesome. Thomas, I'm a, I'm a Google Cloud customer. My company is a Google Cloud customer. 
don't know, it seems like half the email I produce is auto-generated with your logic, which is just insanely cool. So I can tell you, you're making me a more productive person. And, and, and frankly, Google Cloud is an AI company. You've, you've, you've made massive investments in AI infrastructure, including partnerships with companies like NVIDIA. Your Vertex Enterprise platform now helps people build models, whether it's from open source or meta or anthropic. Uh, you've integrated AI products into your Google Workspace. So net result is you've got over a million people using Google Workspace. You've got about 50,000 Vertex users who are just benefiting for all the awesomeness of AI from Google Cloud integrated into their work. My question to you is, can you just kind of talk to us about this incredible movement with generative AI uh, versus traditional AI and how really, uh, I mentioned autonomous enterprise, Google, has helped my company go from you know predictive and prediction era to a generative era that we're in and soon we'll be talking about an autonomous era a self-driving company powered by google cloud what is this promise of generative ai talk to us about that a bit you know each phase of ai has advanced the skills of what models can do you know the very first phase of ai was classification categorization yep. meaning you can look at an object, for example, look at an X-ray and say, I think I detect that this may be a tumor. And that's classifying an, op, you know, an, an image as having potentially a tumor. And then categorization could be this kind of tumor. Next phase was prediction. Prediction was using state-of-the-art models to not just do statistical interpolation, but actually looking at a lot of different parameters and being able to predict. And many organizations, if you look at logistics companies, when is a truck going to get a sub package delivered to you? How long is the flight going to take? How much fuel do you load on a plane? Um, how long does the crew going to take to you know, turn around the plane when it arrives at the airport? These are There are hundreds of these examples that people are using a platform to do on the prediction side. Generation is the next skill. Generation, think about it as you train a model with a set of input and it can generate output. And it's, it's around the creation of information and it can generate all kinds of information. It can generate text, it can generate images, it can generate code, it can generate audio, video files, et cetera. So how do we see these, this advance helping? Think about, I started with a, a fairly mundane case. Think about, I'm selling a car mm -hmm. and I'm selling a used car. And normally you'd want to send a person out to assess the damage to that car and the sort of the, you know, do the inspection of the vehicle. Right. Now you can tell somebody, upload the images. The, the first part, the classification categorization system can assess damage to that vehicle. You can then have the system generate uh, a quote for it. And it can generate code to go against a damage assessment database and say, if it has this many things, here's how I'm going to calculate it. And it can automate, as you said, sending email out with the code for a person. Now, because you've done it digitally now, you are instantly national or global in scale. You don't have to send people out. And so a really mundane skill like generation and classification now put together can automate a complete workflow for a whole company. And these are, and there are, this is happening in many, many, many places. We've had 
for example, a company in retail uh, create a bridal registry and people can huh. register huh. and it sends, not only does it look at your profile, but it looks at the email you sent them, et cetera, and it can create personalized, you know, offers. So it can send you, hey, you know, welcome to the birth, you know, the wedding celebration. And here is the best gift we think would make sense for you to buy. Now, because you can do it instantly and at scale, and when I say at scale, you can do it much quicker. And what used to take thousands and thousands of attempts to train a model, you can now do with five, 10, even 100 maximum. Mm -hmm you can then mass personalize and automate. And so we see that happening at scale in many companies around the world. That's amazing. Wow, Thomas, that is amazing. And one of the things that we're seeing is that convergence of analytics, automation, and AI to speed up decision-making. And while that's actually happening, I mean, this is probably one of the biggest breakthroughs uh, since the internet uh, in terms of the impact of businesses. And usually with these new technologies, sometimes startups have advantages, right? Because they don't have to disrupt existing practices. Uh, but AI is different in a way because it's a lot of data that you need, right? You have to get to a level of mm. a precision that your stakeholders are gonna trust. And so does that mean that incumbents are gonna win? Or for example, where do startups have an advantage versus incumbents? Or this is just gonna be a different way to think about this marketplace? So, you know, we're very early in the market. To do AI well, you need really four things. You need, you know, high quality data sets uh, that you can then fine tune a state of the art model on. So you need fine quality data sets. You need state of the art models. You, obviously you need the infrastructure to serve the models, but then just as importantly, you need to integrate these into the application surface in which you're activating. So take as an example, if you're a, a, if you're a financial institution and you want to detect fraud in new ways, and then you want to use a generative AI model to transact or automate the interaction with the customer to mm -hmm. ensure that if there's a question on fraud, you're helping them explain why the fraud is, you have to actually not only build a fraud model and not just build a state of the art system that goes against the bank's data to understand if fraud is happening. But you also need to then integrate that into the surface of their internet banking or mobile banking app application so that you can actually do it in context of that. And so the companies that succeed will have capabilities for state-of-the-art models driven by high quality data sets that they own and the ability to activate these models within the account within the context of an application surface uh, so they'll be you, you so you need those things to be successful there will obviously be disruptors and the disruptors will take a function or process that was done one way and fundamentally change it and we are seeing for example disruptors in the creative space uh, you know the, if you think about people doing advertising, uh, particularly print, you know, the, the tools now can generate really high quality images, really high quality text, uh, translated instantly in 135 different languages. And so that is a change fundamentally to that business model. And so you'll also see disruptions in different industries where the fundamental business model itself may change. That makes a lot of sense. 
Now, Thomas, uh, you've been a pioneer, you've been a trailblazer in the cloud computing space, but you know, I would say, you know, my company, 24 years in the cloud computing space, but I would say we're in the early innings uh, in terms of the cloud wars. Uh, yes. what, will set apart, what will set apart the winners in the later innings from those who may be left behind? Well, we've always said the winners are always those that solve a fundamental problem materially better, right? And if you look at you know, your company, for example, when the foundational principle was people want to use CRM, they don't want to operate CRM, right? And they want to use software as a service rather than have to run and manage the machines that operate it. If you look at cloud computing, it's always been the boundary that we have been pushing on at Google has always been about simplifying technology hmm. and making it accessible. And if you can do that, you can really change and provide lasting value. So if you look at the first generation of cloud computing, what was called infrastructure as a service, it was eliminating the need when you wanted to build an application to have to have a data center, to have to buy machines, to have to know how to operate a data center by saying, you just access through an API. So that made you know, computational resources available much more widely to people around the world. The next phase was, I don't have the skills to operate this. So people said, can we do managed services? Now, what we're doing with AI through an effort we call Duet is to dramatically simplify how easy these systems are. Think about building a website or a mobile app you know, today you have to have expertise in programming frameworks uh, like Flutter or React. You have to know how to do a database behind it, like a key value store. Yep. You have to learn how to operate and manage clusters. And what our view is you should be able to go to a system and be able to chat with it and say, I want to build a mobile app. Uh, it needs to have the following characteristics the code generation model will generate the skeleton code and create the environment. You can say, hey, I want to support a million and a half users with less than 10 seconds latency, uh, 10 milliseconds latency, and I need to guarantee four nines of availability. And the system will do it for you. There's no reason that that cannot be done with where models are. And by doing that, we, again, change how widely accessible these things are. We are also very encouraged by the fact that we can make these models work not just for people in you know, affluent countries, but also people in emerging markets. One of the you know, touching stories we saw was when we rolled out our duet in Google Workspace, which is our collaboration tool, we got a letter from a teacher in Africa and she said, you know, I used your creativity tool, Duet, in, 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 in Google Docs to generate a teaching plan for my class. And she said, without that, I would never have had access to such a state-of-the-art set of curriculum and, you know, the ability to generate a teaching plan so quickly. So we think it can assist people in, in many different parts of the world but our focus is the winners are always those who take a fundamental problem. And for us, that's really about access to this technology and simplifying it in a materially better way. 
What an amazing job you have. I mean, you're powering companies like mine. Our partnerships with Google Cloud serves our customer service professionals, sales professionals, marketing professionals. Things are being auto-generated magically, massively in produce, producing productivity in my company. And you also teach a, help a teacher in Africa. So the spectrum of value is, is just awesome. So that, that, uh, sorry, sorry, Ray, that's just commentary on my part. Go ahead, Ray. <laughs> no, awesome. no problem. Actually, you know, this is really important because it, you're, you're hitting on the five top areas that, you know, CXOs and businesses are working on analytics, automation, AI, cloud. And then the big one is security. Right. This is one where customers are facing massive security threats. You guys have doubled down. You made an acquisition in September last year of Mandiant for five point four billion. You picked up an incident response and threat intelligence firm Inked, uh, and you also been you know pledging a lot of money in cybersecurity. It's one area where you're doubling down in. And the question I have for you really is, you know, do you see AI jumping in as well, helping to keep customers safer with those investments working together? Hundred percent. I mean, we've actually built a digital cybersecurity uh, professional. We call it Duet for Cyber. What was yep. the basic tenet behind it? You know, there are lots of threats happening, and new threats emerging every day. So we have with Mandy and one of the world's best teams, and also because of our reach with things like our global network and Chrome and other things, the ability to detect threats early. Now. Most companies then say, look, it's great to detect a threat or a collection of threats. The problem is I'm so overwhelmed by the number of potential threats I need to deal with. I don't know how to prioritize. Yep. So we built a model that can look at you at the threats that are emerging, your infrastructure and match based on a variety of things, which ones you need to prioritize. So that's number two. Third one how then will that threat affect me? Which is what's the attack path an actor can take to get in? You know, human beings have a tendency to be very biased. Oh, you know, they're definitely not gonna get in through that path because I've locked it down. Models don't have that emotional bias. So they can look at many, many more patterns to detect what's called, what is the attack path or the attack surface manner? So we allow you to do that. And so that can help you not just prioritize, but tell you where is your likely weak point. It can then help you then remediate it and automate the creation of the runbook to resolve the problem. It can generate the documentation and it can also automate validation. Validation is a lot of people think I, I kicked out the attacker and they actually have not. But the validation is test that you've actually done it. And so we're applying AI to the whole spectrum. And if, you know, it was a relatively obvious thing when we acquired Mandiant, we said, look, the cyber problem, if you distill it down, is really two or three things. Having the best threat intelligence, being able to find the needle in the haystack, some people call that a search problem, and then helping automate the response, which is what we're doing with our security platform and AI in it. So that's sort of what we're doing. We also see AI being used by bad actors to yes. create new types of threats. And so we're also building in our platform a variety of defenses against these new types of threats. That's amazing. Thomas, this is my final question. So we have lots of startup founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs of companies that watch the show. 
Uh, you joined Google Cloud November of 2018, so congratulations on your five-year anniversary. In the five years of leading arguably one of the most advanced AI-powered uh, companies on earth, what are some of the leadership lessons that you've learned over the last five years that you can share with our aspiring entrepreneurs and CEOs who want to follow Thomas Kurian's path to success? I mean, first of all, when we joined, when I joined the company, we were a really small division. Uh, we needed to, you know, bring the way that Google had great products, but we need to build that enterprise capability. You know, today, as an independent unit, uh, we're the fifth largest software company in the world, which is a long, you know, huge credit to the team. But when we looked at it, we felt we needed to do four things really well. We need to take great technology, but convert it into solutions that people can use. Because just having technology, but it's not accessible and easy for people to adopt would be challenging, one. Second, we need to build a great go-to-market function. And that comes from what kind of structure do you have? How do you make sure you're focused? So we started with, we're going to be great in a certain number of industries, certain number of countries, and then we broadened. We also felt all technology you know, platforms, particularly those for enterprise, it's an ecosystem game. It's not your company against another company. It's your ecosystem. So we made decisions very early. You know, Early on, we had a few hundred partners. Today, we have over 100,000 partners. And part of that is we wanted to bring that ecosystem so that people realize it's a bigger pie that they are creating, not slicing off the same pie. That's the third one. And then just as importantly, to do something really well, you have, just like in sports, you know, to play really well, you have to do the grunt work of training. We have to do a lot of the things that people often don't focus on, which are below the surface of the water, the systems, the legal contracting, the frameworks to be more efficient as an organization. Those were all put in place so that you can go faster because unless you have a strong core, you can't really play. And so we have to do all of that. Our good fortune has been we've had a great team. And in the end, it's helping people focus but finding the right leaders to build the organization. And we've been super fortunate that we've been blessed with such a great team of people uh, that have done so much of the work to make us where we are today. Brilliant. Brilliant. Wow. No, some great leadership advice. We're here with Thomas Korean, CEO at Google Cloud. You can follow him on Twitter at Thomas or TK. Thank you very much. Have an amazing Friday. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you both. Thank you. What an extraordinary CEO. Yeah. I mean, he's multi-billion dollar company, such short, short, short window. Well, um, this is our cleanup hitter spot. This is where guests come in and hit a grand slam and continue to expand our mind. So it's our privilege to introduce our next two guests. Bill Holstein, author of Battlefield Cyber, how China and Russia are undermining our democracy and national security. Bill has co-authored Battlefield Cyber with Michael McLaughlin, who was involved in covert ops for the US Navy before assuming a senior position at the US Cyber Command. Bill's previous book was A Grand Strategy, Countering China, Taming Technology, and Restoring the Media. It reflects his own experience in China covering technology and serving as a journalist and observing the media scene for 50 
plus years. Bill is also author of The New Art of War, China's Deep Strategy Inside the United States. It argues that Chinese government was orchestrating a complex long-term plan to steal technology primarily through sophisticated hacking and penetration of U.S. companies by Chinese and Chinese-American agents. You can follow Bill on Twitter at H-O-L-S-T-E-I-N-W-J. Welcome, Bill, to the Shrub TV. Good day. Pleasure to be here. Great. Uh, with Bill, we have Michael McLaughlin, Principal Government Relations Co-Chair, Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group. Michael is a seasoned expert in cybersecurity and data privacy with nearly 15 years of diverse experience. As co-chair of the Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group and principal policy advisor at Buchanan, Ingersoll, and Rooney PC, he leads a team of attorneys and technical consultants in guiding clients through the intricate legal and regulatory landscape of advanced technologies. A veteran naval intelligence officer, Michael has served in pivotal roles for the Department of Defense, such as the Senior Counterintelligence Advisor for United States Cyber Command and Chief of Counterintelligence and Human Intelligence for the Cyber National Mission Force. In academia, Michael has served as a cyber policy research affiliate at the University of Maryland Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security, advising government officials on strategic expansion of cyber capabilities. Michael is also the co-author of Battlefield Cyber. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, Mel. Thanks for having us. Hey, we're real excited to have you here. And we are not only having a kinetic war, we're also having a cyber war. And as you know, it's been going for quite some time. Uh, the bad actors have taken advantage of our openness in our internet and in terms of our systems. Uh, and the bad actors have also built, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, really good firewalls to take down their own systems when they uh, are sensing attack. Um, so this is actually a very dire situation. It's really not much in the public eye other than a few ransomware attacks and a few things, but we're talking about fundamental changes and attacks on a democracy. We're talking about fundamental changes in terms of misinformation. We're talking about fundamental changes and attacks in terms of, you know, what it means uh, to live in an open society. So how deeply have China and Russia really penetrated our American computing systems? Mike, Mike can I start? Age before beauty. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the Chinese and Russians are not just attacking our systems and going away once they're beaten back. They have penetrated our systems. Like in the solar winds attacked in 2021, the Russians got into 18,000 different computing systems, uh, 18,000. And then from there, they were able probably to uh, use those systems, uh, hijack those systems in effect to move into other systems. The Chinese are deeply penetrated into cloud computing systems, perhaps not Google's, but certainly Microsoft's. And, and so our, our entire infrastructure, we've heard a rather utopian view of, uh, of the future of technology, but the Chinese have, have penetrated it in the most profound ways. So uh, we, and we as a, as a nation, uh, as a government, uh, as a private sector, haven't really even begun to get serious about fighting it. Michael? Michael, yeah. yeah. And so as it relates specifically to SolarWinds, and Bill, I love the fact that you kick off with this one because SolarWinds is such an important so, such an important incident for a lot of reasons, but primarily because it highlights the difference and the distinction between our adversaries and the way in which they view and utilize cyber warfare and the way in which we view and utilize cyber warfare. So to back up a little bit, and, and Val, I appreciate you reading my incredibly long biography. Had I known it was I, that I long, had to shorten it. it significantly. You've, you've done a lot. I had to shorten it. You've done I, a lot. I will say I did not write that. So 
separately. Um, no, but in, in kind of my background and where I'm looking at it from is is U.S. military, U.S. law enforcement, U.S. intelligence agencies all operate under different authorities. And, and in those different lines of authority, they do things very differently. And what I mean by that is NSA utilizes cyber capabilities to penetrate networks for the purpose of collecting information. They're an intelligence agency. That's what they do. They operate under Title 50 U.S. code. U.S. Cyber conducts operations to penetrate military networks for a military purpose. These are valid military targets that are prosecuted under Title 10 U.S. Code, all of which both NSA and Cyber Command happen outside of the U.S. They're not allowed to prosecute targets within the U.S., and we see that very clearly with the Section 702 uh, FISA reauthorization that's going through Congress right now. Where that changes is as soon as something crosses the physical border of the U.S., or in the case of IP addresses, as soon as those IP addresses are in the U.S., that is no longer the jurisdiction of NSA, no longer the jurisdiction of Cyber Command. It transfers over to federal law enforcement, whether that's the FBI or the Secret Service or the DEA in some cases, it transfers over. But we look at that and we say, well, now you've got a threat actor who is, in the case of SolarWinds, the SVR, the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, conducting what looks a whole lot like espionage against a private sector company in the U.S. Well, when it's outside of the U.S., NSA can collect against it. U.S. Cyber Command can target it. But the FBI and the FBI can conduct investigations and sanction those entities. As soon as it crosses the border, it becomes a private sector issue or a law enforcement Ooh. issue. And so now SolarWinds, the CISO, who was just indicted by the SEC and, and SolarWinds as a company, which just the SEC just filed suit against, suddenly they're at fault because a nation state actor just conducted what looks like a cyber attack against their company. And to make matters a little bit even more confusing, it's the SVR. We can say pretty definitively that they did that for the purposes of espionage because that's what they do. They're an intelligence organization. Under international law, espionage is not a violation of international law. So having a foreign intelligence service penetrate a network doesn't mean that Cyber Command can go and launch an attack in response to retaliate because there was no violation of international law because it's viewed as espionage. But here's the wrinkle. As soon as an organization conducts this type of attack, you have no idea whether it's a cyber attack targeting critical infrastructure to turn the lights out in Manhattan or if it's purely espionage, until the lights go out. And so we have the SVR penetrating the SolarWinds network and the networks of 18,000 of their customers. We don't know if that was for the purpose of espionage, if it was pre-positioning for pers persistence to conduct a large-scale cyber attack against this country. And we probably will never know. But our authorities preclude U.S. Cybercom or NSA from collecting information or targeting those organizations as soon as the, that crosses the border into the United States. Wow. May I add, one of the cases I'm most concerned about is Volt Typhoon. It was disclosed this summer on the front page of the New York Times that Chinese actors, state-supported actors, have inserted malware into the critical, critical infrastructure, water, energy, communications that would support U.S. military bases in the United States and abroad and that they've inserted this malware and the U.S. government cannot find it all, cannot, it cannot remove it all, so that the Chinese have installed malware in, inside this critical infrastructure that would also, uh, if, they, if they decided to, to prevent American military activity in the Pacific, it would also have impact on the civilian populations that depend on power and uh, communications and water. So 
this 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 is incredible that for the first time the Chinese have have actually started uh, uh, we, and we can see them uh, uh, intervening in our critical infrastructure, something they have not done previously. Previously, they've concentrated on selling, uh, stealing uh, information and on penetrating decision-making structures of private sector as well as the government sector. We also saw this summer they penetrated the State Department and Commerce Department emails. Pretty incredible that our secretaries were visiting China at the time. So we're seeing just remarkable depths of penetration of, of our computing systems that that, uh, that should alarm everybody. And to add to that, it's just another level of uh, uh, unrest. Michael has talked about social platform like TikTok, and you, I think you called it the single greatest propaganda tool ever created, where you can mine data from 140 some odd million American users and exploit to develop individual targeted attacks uh, and to amplify uh, political and cultural divides. Talk about that some more, because I don't think most people think about TikTok in the way you do. No, and it's it's more than just a propaganda tool. And that, that's one aspect of it. It is, I would say TikTok is the single greatest weapon of state in, in from a digital perspective that has ever been created. And the reason being is there are 140 million Americans who are active daily users of TikTok. That's nearly half of our population are on this platform that is actively collecting their information, actively collecting their geolocation information down to the the the, the precise location within 10 feet. The contacts, their contacts are using everything. Collecting their, yeah, collecting their the clipboard. And so if you copy something to your clipboard and it happens to be the password to another site, to oh, your wow, financial wow. information, wow. they're collecting all of that information. And where is it going? Well, TikTok is owned by ByteDance. ByteDance is a Chinese corporation that is headquartered in China, subject to Chinese laws. Well, go back to 2015, China began implementing a series of laws that required, that mandated that any company that is either organized in China or operating in China has to share information with the Chinese government. So the Ministry of Public Security, if they go in and they ask for access to data, access to networks, or to provide full data sets, those companies cannot say no. Per Chinese law, they cannot say no. And so what we've seen historically, or at least in the past few years, as all the rhetoric surrounding TikTok began to really ramp up, and you saw Forbes put out article after article about the, 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 the parade of horribles that TikTok is, the Forbes journalists were targeted by ByteDance. And there were reports coming out of ByteDance in China that those Chinese analysts had access to the geographic location of the Forbes journalists. Who were they TikTok. using TikTok? <laughs> they were using TikTok, which is the craziest thing. You're reporting on it. You know the problem. It's almost like shame on you. But at the same time, it showed very clearly that in China, that that, that data, the location data of our journalists in the United States was available to the TikTok engineers and analysts in China, the ByteDance engineers in China, which means it was also accessible to the Chinese government. So now you look at that from just a you know First Amendment chilling problem. Obviously, we we hold our journalists, we hold our right to free speech incredibly dear, our right to the media, and Bill as a journalist in particular, hold this incredibly dear. China, very much the opposite. They want to make sure that they're controlling the narrative and they're identifying if they have leaks or if they have people who are talking to the media, they want to clamp down on that immediately and throw them and their whole family in jail. Well, how else can this be used? Because right now we're just saying, well, it's just TikTok, it's just ByteDance. 
what's the difference? Google is probably collecting the same thing. I think Thomas would probably argue the other way, but we're there. But we've got different, different laws. We've got well, different. different laws, exactly. And so we, within the right. U.S., Google is not turning that information over to the FBI without a subpoena, without a valid court yeah, order. Yeah, a records request, yeah. So. In China, it's the exact opposite. They, they are required, the companies are required to give that information over. There is no protection that they can say, hey, this is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Chinese government would simply say, look at these laws we just wrote, you're required to do this. So, so this tells us why we're so vulnerable. What are we doing on a policy level? What are we doing on a technology level? What are we doing from a communications perspective uh, to educate pu public that this is happening to us? Because we're sitting ducks and it doesn't seem like anybody cares. Or well, maybe I have a wrong perspective. And, and, and can you just for uh, uh, explain at a high level, you know, one sentence, why are we so vulnerable? Is it just we, our schooling, our education systems have failed us? Because I don't remember. We were so naive in building these systems, building the internet. Remember the excitement of the early 90s? We were going to democratize information. We were going to revolutionize the world. We were going to uh, reach out and change people's lives. And so there was so much excitement that we, we used open source software to build the internet. And so we don't know where the software came from. And so the IT systems that have been built up by corporations were built to maximize profit. Uh, and to uh, be, be fast, to have low latency. So no one thought in early days and, and to this very day, no one has really sought to uh, secure these systems against our adversaries because uh, it's very expensive, it'd be it's, uh, complicated, and it would be painful. It would, it's, uh, so starting this process will be not easy. Yeah, and, and, and to, to that end, it's we, we're very much playing catch up and there's there's kind of an old old maxim that the legal process and the law is always going to trail technology technology is always going to move sure. faster the law is always sure. going to try to play catch sure. up but how long have we had artificial intelligence capabilities i mean really how long have we had them probably a decade where we're, we're really talking sure. from that, that google has been developing it or using it and it's not until chat gpt came along and open ai really brought it to the fore that we now have an executive order that just dropped on Monday that says, oh, maybe we should start regulating this. When in reality, we've been looking at chat, we've been looking at AI in these types of large language models that ChatGPT represents and generative AI and where we're going to go to autonomous AI very soon. We've been looking at this, we've been knowing it's coming, yet our policymakers don't seem to be getting behind it and don't seem to be making the decisions that they need to and writing the laws that they need to for fear of either not understanding and not understanding what the far-reaching implications are, which fair and valid, but at the same time, the answer isn't to sit on your hands and do nothing, which is what our lawmakers are right. currently doing as it relates to the vast quantity uh, or the vast amount of technology issues that we're facing. TikTok's a great example. Why is it that there are there were, I, I think, over 30 states that were individually suing TikTok for data privacy issues? Yet the federal government is not doing anything as it relates to either restricting access or requiring TikTok, the data that's being that, that TikTok collects and controls to be only within the United States and not able to be transferred back to China. Why is it have that kind of law yet? Gina Ramundo and the Commerce Secretary said in, in China that if any U.S. government restricted the use of TikTok, they'd lose the vote of every, every voter under the age of 35. So TikTok has achieved political power. <laughs> in, in 140 United million States. active users. Yeah. Well, yeah. My, one of my favorite stories is 
uh, within the Commerce Department, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and mm -hmm. Technology, collects uh, known vulnerability information. And so they have a, a, an open database of known vulnerabilities that exist in the computing systems used by the private sector. Hundreds of thousands of these known vulnerabilities. They publish this. This is no, this is this is public information. The Chinese Ministry of State Security has access to that, and the FBI and CISA have, <laughs> have have watched the Ministry of State Security go into this database and collect the known vulnerabilities, not just the vulnerabilities, but how to exploit the vulnerabilities. So <laughs> we and so our our computing systems are are so complex, some so large that when and when a CIO or CISO tries to uh, analyze. What do, what do we need to do to fix this? They they run a program that can identify maybe tens of thousands of known vulnerabilities, and then they try to prioritize. Well, which ones do we really have to fix? Which ones can we get get a get away with not fixing? So the the complexity of these large systems is such that they're basically out of control. I mean, no nobody can make nobody can protect them uh, uh, entirely. Yeah, I'm interested to sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Good. Well, no, I'm interested to know your points of view on cryptocurrency. Two days ago was the 15 year anniversary of the Satoshi Bitcoin uh, document that that launched what's now a trillion dollar market cap crypto market. What are your thoughts about vulnerabilities in and in, in, in the future of currency being digital and what that would mean in terms of possible threats? So from from a from a threat perspective, I think anything that is going to be software based is inherently going to be vulnerable. That's yeah. not unique to digital currencies, though. I mean, our, the SWIFT system is vulnerable. The, the, right, the transfer system by which we transfer funds from one country to another or from one account to another is inherently vulnerable. That's not unique to digital currencies. What is unique to digital currencies, though, is the anonymous nature of some of them. And I say of some of them very very intentionally. So like Bitcoin, people say, oh, Bitcoin's anonymous. No, it's not. It, it's, it's just not. Bitcoin is pseudonymous. And anyone who's read Tracers in the Dark knows very clearly how we can trace Bitcoin transactions and how the FBI can trace Bitcoin transactions. So the more ransomware users that are, are actors that are using Bitcoin, the better, because by and large, the FBI can trace it. It's just a resource question. Where we run into problems is where we have Bitcoin mixers and we have the ability to take the transactions that occur through Bitcoin and then mix them up with other transactions such that now you truly are making those transactions anonymous. That becomes a problem. Or where you're using, you're using private coins like Monero, for instance, where it's a private blockchain and it's not subject to inspection. Then you have a little bit more of an issue because now the, the FBI, now the NSA can't track those transactions and they can't trace it back to where those where they're occurring. This becomes a problem. Ransomware is the obvious one because that's how you pay ransom. But it also becomes an issue with uh, CSAM, child sex, child sexual exploitation material um, or child sexual assault material, um, anything that deals with COPPA, human trafficking, anything, any illicit activity that's being um, being undertaken either via the web or even in person that utilizes these cryptocurrencies, when you're using private coins, it becomes a huge issue. So we hear all the time that, well, should we ban all cryptocurrency or should we ban digital assets, digital coins? I don't think that's necessarily the answer, but similar to AI and similar to the other legislation that we've seen with technology or lack thereof, our legislators just need to understand what the technology is and how to properly regulate it. 
And we're just not at a point right now where our legislators truly understand the technology or understand the implications of it to effectively write laws. It is so frustrating. <laughs> it is so frustrating how little they know um, in terms the, of the, the The movement, and it's sort of a religious movement, it has taken a huge beating with the uh, the, the conviction of Samuel Bank Friedman at FTX. Yesterday. I mean, that I, I think that more and more people and more and more governments are going to look at uh, a cryptocurrency as a shady, as something that needs to be controlled or better managed. I, I, I don't feel that the cryptocurrency um, mavens have the same momentum they might have had a, a year ago. And yeah, yet no. there's a lot of discussions about approved upcoming approved ETFs that might you know, give companies like BlackRock and others opportunity to, to provide access to crypto using, again, using ETFs. I mean, that's the 30% rise in the last month in terms of Bitcoin's price has been yep. based on uh, more easier, large scale access to these capabilities and technology. Go ahead, Ray. So, so related to that, I mean, there, I mean, look, there are three things that make the US uh, a very enviable country, right? We've always had a reserve currency uh, and that reserve currency status uh, could be eroded uh, from that perspective that we're talking about. The second aspect is we've always had really good immigration policies and we've seen what the effects of an open border on the bottom have actually had. And the other piece is we've always had good defense, right? But we're at a point where we're fighting two proxy wars and we could enter a third theater and we're fighting a cyber war. So what should be done uh, on that third piece in terms of the cyber war? So before we get into even more resources being consumed and even more areas being impacted and affected, what, what's the policy I, implication? What should we do? Yeah, and Ray, I would actually add, you, you, you hit three legs. I would actually add a fourth leg to that and say, historically, we've also had the moral and ethical high ground. And we've been able to claim that really since since World War II, we've been able to yep. say that we we hold yep. the moral high ground against yeah. you know the, the evil empire, the USSR, or pick, pick a rogue state. Well, now we're seeing you know inappropriate activities or irresponsible actions by our leaders and by the family members of our leaders. And, and so I'm being very on, on both sides. I'm going to be be critical to both sides, both parties. But we're seeing this at the highest level where it's actually eroding our moral and ethical high grounds. Well, that, that is then becoming a much larger problem in the geopolitical realm in the international community, because we have countries like Russia and China that are sowing the seeds of discord across our nation. And they're not doing it by creating fantasies or fictionalizing the issues. They're doing it by exacerbating the issues that already exist. They're doing it by driving wedges within our, our society and making these problems more pronounced, more, more, they're connecting. more they're connecting the dots like generative AI and, and giving us real world hallucinations. Exactly. First time, Ray, we've, we've heard that the Chinese have used AI tools to develop posts that permeate into the American social uh, yep, media ecosystem, saying that the fire in Maui was created by a secret U.S. government weather weapon. So they they have they have permeated that message into American social media that, oh, it was U.S. government uh, did, that did this. So, or, or secret agents somehow did this. Right, and they're exploiting the traditional, you know, uh, Hawaiian native uh, antagonists with right. the uh, Haole that showed up on the island. Right. And, and, and they're exploiting that weakness and, and they're trying to exacerbate that divide. They're creating cultural wars for us. Right, based absolutely. Based on actions that we've taken. And they're dividing us. I mean, so it, we're coming up on an election year. It's going to be an incredibly vicious election cycle. 
as and it's going to become increasingly more vicious. Part of that is, do we live in our own echo chambers as a result of social media? Certainly. There is a certain percentage, a very high percentage of American adults who only get their news from social media, which is then curated for them based on the things that they want to hear, not based on views that are going to challenge them. Well, the Russians and the Chinese have penetrated these these echo chambers, and they are feeding intentionally disinformation and misinformation to our electorate, to our entire nation, and they are sowing discord and creating this issue. So they're undermining that. That's kind of the part of undermining our democracy. When we talk about cyber warfare. We think U.S. Cyber Command. We think NSA. And what are they doing when they're sending trons downrange? Well, our adversaries look at this in a much broader perspective. They look at it from information warfare is part of cyber warfare. They look at it as espionage and intellectual property theft, like the Chinese. This is a part of part of cyber warfare. Well, it is. It's to take out our profits, right? It, exactly. So it's, so I mean, they've it's, found every way to exploit our system. They look at drugs in the U.S. as a way to take down our leadership, right? right I mean, exactly. they're going in every, they look at trafficking the same way. They're I getting mean, even it, for what happened in the opium wars in 1840. They're you know, reliving so it. They fought a war against the British over the sale of opium. And so now they're looking at the fentanyl coming in here and saying, this is payback, guys. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. in the second part of our book, I think we should just spend a moment. We do talk about solutions. Uh, one solution yeah. is to create a Department of Digital Services in the U.S. government to bring together the different functionalities that now are domiciled in different places in the U.S. government. We talk about the need to improve the way our software is written. And so there's not as much open source coming in from repositories like GitHub that we 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 insist that we know about the what's in this software. Uh, the hardware, I mean, the the way our systems are configured, the, the idea of a defendable border uh, is gone, a perimeter that's gone. We need to go with this more zero trust architecture and inside of our systems. We need to assume that bad guys are gonna get, get in and how do we prevent them from elevating their privileges? So we need we need some real changes in our way the private sector thinks and the way the government functions. And we need to find a way for the private sector and the government to cooperate better together. So. The, the firms like Mandiant, uh, they are they have a, enormous power. If the, if the only the federal government could give Mandiant the keys to know what's going on in the threat universe, Mandiant could give their customers the the that information. This is Mike's idea. This would uh, get over the, the hurdles of having the government conveying threat information to the private sector. There would be some sort of intermediary buffering zone. Mike, why don't you expand on that briefly? Well, there's just one other aspect to this. And, and one thing, Bill, you didn't touch on was we talk about the the need to balance what it is that we do as a nation and what we do very well, which is to, to create new technology and to, to enable innovation. We don't want to stifle that. And so companies like Google Cloud, and, and Thomas talked about earlier, talked about all the different great technology and capabilities that Google Cloud has brought out. They have 100,000 partners within their ecosystem. They're collecting all that data. They're, they're greatly enhancing their ability they're, the training data, the high quality data sets that they're collecting, all of that is going to advance our capability as a nation because Google is an American company. And so where Google is able to develop those capabilities, they can then turn that back around and sell it to the government. In reality, that's the way it should work. The government should be buying AI tools from a company like Google that has access to all of this data. We don't want to stifle that. But at the same time, social media companies who are able to basically take a step back and say, I'm protected by Section 230 of the Communications mm. Decency Act, mm. and I'm going to shield myself, 
And thus, you can't prosecute me and you can't make me take down that very clear Chinese disinformation campaign because I'm shielded by this by this law. That's a problem. How do we balance Google's ability to collect all the information that they're able to collect subject to Section 230 while at the same time ensuring that Meta or X or, or, or TikTok, they don't have that same capability or that there is some lever that the government can pull and say, this is a problem. We need to take this down, not because we're censoring you, but because it's a threat to national security. Wow. We are at a point where the British were in the middle of the... Uh... Cold War, where the Russians have infiltrated almost every aspect of British government, society, academia, as well as the systems. And it is very scary. We're here with Bill Holstein, author of Battlefield Cyber, How China and Russia Are Undermining Our Democracy and National Security, and Michael McLaughlin, Principal, Government Relations, Co-Chair, Cybersecurity and Data Privacy Practice Group. Um, very, very, very interesting stuff. And of course, we're all scared. Thank you very much. Congratulations <laughs> on your book. Thank you. Congratulations on the Thank book. You. Thank so, you both. Look forward to having you, you guys back. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that has gone by fast. Uh, I don't have a TikTok account, uh, and I'm glad, but I know my kids do, so we need to have a family dinner discussion. Uh, Ray, summarize the last hour for us, please. Well, I think some of the biggest issues facing us are analytics, automation, AI, cloud, and cybersecurity. And we managed to hit all five of those on the show, uh, emphasizing the cybersecurity with the last set of guests. Uh, the world is changing really quickly. And I think we see a physical kinetic world, um, yet our foreign actors and foreign players and people that look more holistic see a world that's becoming more digital and really trying to understand what the guardrails for, for digital will be. And so as we build more systems and as we more, move, move more from physical systems to digital systems, the guardrails have to be there. Uh, and AI is one of those things that can help us or hurt us. Uh, it can be used as a weapon, you know, for good or bad. Uh, and, and I think, you know, a tool for good. And, and I think that's the important thing. People just have to understand that, you know, the, the essence of humanity is at stake here and, and how we want to play is a reflection of our values in society. Not to go really deep, right? But, but the point being is like what we learned from Thomas is really that, you know, these tools are here. They're available. Businesses are going to take advantage of it. There's ex exponential advantages that will come from it. But we also saw the other side of it. It's just, you know, what would happen, you know, in the wrong hands. And, and that's what's going on in the cybersecurity world. Great, great summary. And yeah, I think, I think uh, listening to Thomas and Michael, given the velocity of innovation, speed and direction at unprecedented rates, private sector has to lead this effort. I just, yes. you know, I, I don't see how government can keep up with the, again, I, we're talked about, you know, digital currency, 15 years old, and we still don't have clear policies. And well, we don't even know who yeah. created the code. Yeah, we don't even know. Right, 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 <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly, exactly. What's going on here, you know? The last time Satoshi sent a message, I think it was 2012. So yeah, it's over a decade we've heard from whomever this person is. So although he uses language that makes me think he's not of US, like um, the way he spells certain words, it seems like more of a uh, UK origin, but but or European origin. Well, that but in any event, yeah, that's <laughs> that's exactly true. That's exactly true. Okay, next week we have exciting amazing lineup we have marissa thalberg chief marketing and communication officer at SeaWorld parks and entertainment talk about a place where mass personalization and scale and speed to values driving innovation dave donatelli ceo of riverbed ceo of riverbed 
And Felice B. Eckelman and Julie P. Cantor, authors of Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace, step-by-step -step guidance from the experts. Ray, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. This was episode 341. We look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you, everyone. All right. Take care. Bye. Happy Friday.